focus quite rightly of what we're going to discuss now is about the future, but I, I think at the moments like this we also have to remember that there have been many initiatives for peace and reform in the past. This is not the first generation or the first time that people in Myanmar have tried to deal with these things. Um, and I, I think from this, that we, what we've got to re remember is that good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's a given. And at moments like this, there are two Karen veterans who, who I met very early in my research. And, and, and you know, I remember the sort of things they said to me when I was first starting. And I find their words are very sort of you know, useful today as they were then. And I, and I think it's particularly important because we now have a peace process, which is like the conflict process in Myanmar. It's becoming the most complicated in the world. And, and, I, and I think sometimes people think there's a logic to this. And I, I, I'm going to say that actually I don't think there should be a logic. I don't think there's anything preordained about the country's problems. And that's a bad starting point if we, if we look at it like this. And, and the first person I wanted to mention is Sothardin, who was, the K, was a KNU president. He was on the 1946 Karen Goodwill Mission to, to London, and he was one of the lobbyists for the Karen cause. And if you look at the book, This is the Danger of Academics, by Hugh Tinker, uh, which was the, the doyen of studies in the 50s and 60s, in his book he, he mentioned Sothardin, and he said he disappeared. Mm. Now, the point about this, he didn't disappear. <laughs> and this notion that the KNU president had disappeared, I think, is the sort of thing which has befallen many of the nationalities in the country. They're out of sight, so people think they're out of mind. And I think this is a long-term marginalization. So when I asked Sothardin, I, I said, you know, um, what he was expecting for the future. This was about 1984. And he really surprised me. I expected a complicated answer. And he said, oh, it's very easy. We just want three things. The right to speak our language, the right to practice our religion, and the right to run our own business. And he said, it's an indication of how bad things are that we've never had these rights, that we have this conflict today. He said, since the Second World War, outside actors have always come into the, our area. We're not going to other people's areas. And there's always this trouble. So, so to him, it was a very simple thing. And you've got to remember, this is a founder of the KNU. This was their vision, to, to go for very simple, basic rights like this. And the second person, it was around the same time, was another KNU founder called Mikaroli. Uh, who had been from the Karen Signal section, and he'd also been to Britain. And he was the first person, this is somebody who'd been in the revolution since the beginning, who pointed out something that we're touching on today. Because um, he was very keen to point out the distortions in politics, state, and society brought about by war. Now, he was talking about it after 30 years, so we've got to imagine what it's like another 30 years, years mm -hmm. later. Um, because... Um, at the time, there was a perception that the KNU was a very powerful organization because it had bases along the Thai border, like Palu, Three Pagoda Pass, Kumura. They were more busy than Miyawadi, which mm. was the government's you know, crossplane. But Mika, and he was a maverick, and he, he fell out with the KNU, he didn't see it like this at all. He was very keen to tell me that what I was looking at was a symptom of everything that was wrong. Mm. He said, we never started out, whether it's the Tatmadaw, the government or the KNU to build up military business empires. This is not what it should have been about. So I said, well, don't you need you know, money to, to, to administer your territories? And he said, no. He said, all we needed, and that's what we had when we started, and that's what he feared they were losing, was the support of the people. Mm. He said, if we have the support of the people, we don't need anything. And he says, we've lost sight of that. And I'm mentioning this because I actually think this is the same situation today. Mika was waiting for that moment. Well, it's arrived. But it's taken many decades. Can we honestly say who has the sort of the support of the people? Who has the policies? Who has the ideas? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's um, really um, the, 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 the final point I wanted to make. And this is where we run into a dilemma of this kind of conflict track of the country. Because I was talking about the 80s, that was the Burmese way to socialism. We've had the Slork SBDC, we've had the Thane Sen government. And I think the dilemma we're facing now is that many of the structures of conflict are exactly the same. Mm. That means we have military elites, maybe the government, uh, Tapador on one side, ethnic opposition groups, diversity, and then business groups, as we heard this morning, they're moving somewhere in between, like with cement factories or whatever it is. Um, so I think what is then needed is obviously political form at both the national and local levels. Uh, but you, you know, anybody traveling around the country today, and we've heard a lot of stories, will see this uh, incidence of, of, of long-running conflicts, conflict is a way of life. And at the same time, we are seeing, as we've also heard today, new challenges, you know, they're coming through with migration, uh, resource uh, exploitation um, and uh, corruption. Internal displacement, of course, is going on in other parts of the country on a massive scale, a million people or so who are IDPs in the country today. So I think the big problem, and we need to take this very seriously because of what's happening in the northeast of the country, is just at the moment, that people are saying, let's get real, let's get together, let's discuss these things, there's going to be a new generation of grievances. Mm -hmm. And I think where the problem is developing is that we don't need to despair. I, I've mentioned two current leaders who have very simple views, and they go back to the early Panglong, and what was missing at Panglong, what was wanted, it was very simple. So I suppose what I would say is that what is needed now is a political endgame. That's what has always been needed. What is not needed, and that's the danger, is a kind of conflict as a way of life continuation. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the point I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. okay. Thanks very much, Martin. Um, ben, I wonder if you want to say a few framing words again, and, and not necessarily in response to that, sure. but just the setting up the panel. Thank you. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, first of all, can I say what a, a wonderful day um, that this has been? And it's particularly a, a pleasure and a privilege for me to be here today because I began my uh, involvement with Burma, Myanmar uh, about 18 years ago, so not, not nearly as long as, as Martin, and it's a privilege to, to follow Martin because uh, Martin's uh, book was one of the first uh, books that I read when I got involved with, with Burma. Um, but I be began my involvement with Burma um, with, the, uh, with the Karen people, and, and really for the first um, 12 years or so of uh, those 18 years, uh, my focus was very much on the Thai border, the Karen and, and the Kareni and, and Shan. In the last five years or so, it's fair to say that my focus has shifted somewhat in response to the changing situation. And I've, as uh, Matt said, I've focused uh, much more on the Kachin, uh, the Rohingya, uh, the um, wider issues of uh, religious intolerance and freedom of religion or belief in the country. But I think it's important to see uh, what we've been focusing on today um, in that wider context, because many of those same themes uh, are, are extremely and directly relevant uh, for the Karen, particularly the issues uh, of uh, religion and um, the political uh, settlement that Martin's been uh, uh, discussing um, is, of course, uh, the solution not just for the Karen, but for all um, the ethnic nationalities. Um, just to give you, looking back very briefly, um, a little bit of um, some examples of, of my history with the Karen. I um, was with uh, Pado Mansha um, three days uh, before his assassination. I sat on the very same uh, veranda of his home in Maysot, um, but spent about half a day with him uh, meeting former child soldiers that he was sheltering. 
um, and uh, left uh, having spent the best part of half a day with him and three days later, uh, as you, you all know, he was uh, assassinated. Uh, I've also taken several uh, uh, people, um, particularly politicians and, and journalists, uh, to uh, the Karen on the Thai border. Um, perhaps most significantly, the, the person who is now and has just been re-elected uh, Speaker of the House of Commons, um, John Burko, um, about, um, about 13 uh, years ago. Uh, and he's been a great friend uh, to, to Burma as a whole and to the, the Karen in particular um, all those uh, years. Um, I also took my own sister uh, twice uh, to the border. She's a violinist, and uh, uh, she came once uh, as a violinist and played in the both the refugee camps on the Thai side of the border uh, and IDP camps uh, on the, the other side of the border. Um, uh, and then she came back a couple of years later with a, a string quartet. And unfortunately, we didn't cross the border on that occasion because we couldn't work out how to get the cello in the boat. Um, so we stayed on the Thai side. But uh, there's been some, some family uh, involvement um, as well. The Free Burma Rangers was mentioned earlier in the day. Uh, and uh, I've worked very, very closely with them. And, and I'm a, a very big uh, a fan of theirs. Um, but really, I think the, the last two thoughts that I wanted just to put on the table and then look forward to the discussion are Firstly, really to echo what Martin has said, that, that ultimately uh, the political um, uh, solution is, is what we should all be focusing on, and, and what does that look like? like? I think the, the issues Martin raised earlier in the day about the geography of uh, where the Karen people uh, live and what does it mean for a political um, settlement for them is something it would be good to discuss further. I think the political settlement is also important to discuss in the context of I've become increasingly aware in recent years of the what I detect are growing political divisions within the KNU. Um, uh, and I know the most recent KNU um, uh, election uh, was, um, was not greeted uh, with enthusiasm by some. Um, uh, I know that's a, a sensitive issue, but it may, may be worth just uh, putting out there on the table. And then lastly, the theme that's uh, come up throughout the day um, is the uh, really important issue of um, uh, the role of religion um, and religious freedom, religious tolerance, um, and, and the role of religion both as a force for good um, uh, in, in all uh, communities, but also the potential, well, not the potential, the reality of uh, the politicization of religion uh, as, a, as a negative force. And that's, I think, as true uh, of the Karen people as it is uh, for the whole country of Burma. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so so keeping with this kind of <clears throat> starting out with this sort of reflective uh, mode on some some key moments in the past, I wanted to um, sort of prompt any of the any of the panelists to think through. You know, there are some moments in the last sort of 20, 25 years that have clear significance for Karen and Karen politics, right? So um, formation of the DKBA. We heard about the fall of Manorplaw. The you know the ceasefire in 2012, but thinking about sort of broader Burmese sort of wood uh, um, watershed political moments, what are what is the kind of relevance of these that, that you know, for Karen politics or the Karen cause or anything like that? So thinking about um, the 2008 constitution, thinking about the establishment of the Thane Sein government in 2011, um, thinking about the NCA in 2015, and then thinking about the NLD's you know, sort of um, rise to power in, in 2016. I mean, 
what has been the significance of some of these moments, if any, uh, for some of the topics that we've that we've talked about today? Anybody want to? Well, I think um, the first thing is that we've got such a different context within the country. You know, we, we, we can't deny that. The country is much more liberal. It's much more open. And I, and I think it's very important that we don't sort of <laughs> ignore that by just concentrating on all the problems, because mm -hmm. this is actually an important building block. It's, like, it's not quite a Berlin fall, you know, wall of moments, but it has changed the context dramatically, and it means many more things are possible. Um, I think what is interesting, though, is the conflict actors remain pretty much the same and in many of the same positions. And I think what came through in the morning's presentations, we saw that continuity. Um, I, I think it's very important that we acknowledge that the, uh, the NCA and the Thane Saint Peace process didn't start in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. It was part of a transition which actually began about 2008 when the Constitution was drawn up. And that was seen very clearly with the BGF order. There was actually no uh, intermediary discussion. There was no transitional discussion. Suddenly, there was an order for the armed groups in the northeast, uh, sorry, in the country, to, to 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 change into BGFs. And the problem was that because that related very closely to the second element, which was a strategic decision mm -hmm. from the military to change the focus of peace initiatives from the northeast to the southeast. Um, I think experience over the last 20, 30 years showed that if there's a will, a ceasefire can be made overnight. There shouldn't be any doubt about that because that is in fact what happens. But when you have areas where ceasefires don't get declared, something is going on on one side or other to block it. Uh, and, and so you've got to understand why has the ceasefire process appeared a success in the southeast, particularly with this NCA, which has been heavily backed by Western donors. And, uh, uh, and, and basically, the West has taken its eyes off the northeast. And, and not recognize that a completely reverse set of trends. Now, if we ignore that, we don't understand the anger, the resentment, the humanitarian crisis which is going on in the country right now, and why there are so many groups which are reluctant to sign the ceasefire. Um, and, and added to that, they went through the ceasefire experience. The UWSA had a ceasefire for 28 years. KAO had a ceasefire for 17 years. So this is not like people being naive. They're looking at the KNU and are wondering whether the KNU is naive. So I think that's, that's one thing we've just got to keep in mind. And I think there's a, a second crucially important thing from the KNU's point of view. Uh, and again, it hasn't come up today, but we've got to remember that when the KNU wasn't signing a ceasefire, and they, they suffered greatly from this, that was because they were allied to the democracy forces. That was the NCGUB, the Burmese students, and so on. That was a decision they consciously made. When the other groups in the Northeast made ceasefires, they, um, uh, they didn't. And they suffered heavily. Commanders like we've heard today, like Mutu and uh, Guaytu, they lost a lot of territory in their areas because the KNU line was to stay loyal to that alliance. Now, of course, the political balance has changed. And the really interesting question going on now is, what does that mean? This is the first time since 1948. March 48, the Communist Party of Burma went underground, the largest opposition party in the country then. Now we're in the first period since independence when the main parties amongst the Burma majority are actually working together. That's a really interesting proposition. What is the NLD's policies? How, how is it going to play out towards the minorities? There's a lot of nervousness. Mm -hmm. All of these are opportunities, but these are things, you know, in answer, what has changed in the landscape? I, I think these are very profound. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. Can you I mean, yeah, I could just pitch in with some thoughts about what's changed since 2010, if we think we're earlier in the panel discussion, I think the second pa panel discussion, there was an interesting debate about the legitimacy of the KNU, about 
other forms of representative bodies, current political bodies. Um, and inevitably, we, we, we've got to reflect in, in 2010, there were five current political parties. And now, in 2017, there's one current polit politician in Northern Karen State. And so that's a, a huge sea change um, in terms of formal representation, Karen political representation. I don't know where that leaves us. Um, I hear that now that there are ideas afoot about consolidating those five Karen parties, which is a kind of ironic twist on the Karen story about two people going into a room and five Karen parties coming out. <laughs> We've now got five Karen parties going into a room and hopefully one is going to come out. Um, and, and, and how they are going to engage with the KNU or that, that new political structure and what that will look like and the implications that will have um, for, for, for an ethnic group dispersed over, over different locations with different relationships, and I think this is crucial, different relationships to peace as well as conflict. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I can sort of only really comment on, um, particularly since the, I think, 2012 ceasefire um, in, in Korean State, which I think did have really significant um, impacts on communities. Um, and I think part of that, for me, like a big change would be like the opening up of the Miyawadi border for crossing. Like that's just changed the landscape um, of, of, of Korean, and parts of Korean State at least significantly in terms of trade and the like even just thinking about the Asia highway um, I mean it's very controversial and and there's been problems around land grabs but if you speak with people in Pa'an they're pretty excited about how quick um, how, how quick it takes to sort of get to Miwadi and how that sort of changed um, the dynamics of trade um, and also thinking about something like access to um, uh, media and phones that also has completely changed the landscape and I think even though um, I, I agree with what you say Martin that that some of the conflict actors are the same but I think that the social landscape is quite different actually in sort of the opening up of um, the ability for people to speak through CSOs and I mean Pa'an obviously it's like you could say it's unique compared to other parts of the state but it's a pretty dynamic community and and I think that like the KNU are just, they're not the only actors. Um, and you know, you can certainly criticize how many women are involved in the peace process, but there are multiple women's sort of organizations who are sort of campaigning and lobbying to have a voice and a stronger voice, um, as well as youth networks. And I, th I think you can't really um, just push those groups away and, and sort of ignore the impact they are having. Could I just add something to that? Because I think that's, you know, I, I think it was Ashley South in 2011. It, it, there was a TNI report, and he talked about zones of relative autonomy uh, largely existing around religious institutions and leaders. And uh, one of the things I've noticed in Pa'an is, is the way in which social services uh, are now acting almost outside the patronage of monasteries mm. and churches. Mm. And I think that's a very significant thing. Um, certainly in terms of the structures that I've been looking at. So there are implications that are going sort of quite deep into the previous infrastructure and way of operating. Mm. Um, and I think that's an, a, a very interesting avenue for further research mm. as well, looking at those new networks, those mm. new relationships mm. that civil society is now developing. And I think also they've been able to sort of um, overcome some of the old um, antagonisms between, say, Christian and Buddhist communities, mm. Um, I mean, 
from my experience, there just wasn't those tensions between the communities because they work together so closely. And, you know, young Buddhist kids are also going and singing Christmas carols in December because that's just their friends are Christian. And I, I think that if we continue per to perpetuate these boundaries or kinds of ideas of Karenness or Karen sort of divides, then, then those sort of narratives too take over. Having said that, and I'll just say one other mm -hmm. thing on that, um, one thing that was really interesting in doing research during the elections in 2015 was watching how civil society organisations were mobilising and the kinds of priorities they had in Pa'an. And I don't know whether you noticed that, this as well, Justine, but uh, you know, it, was, it was very clear that certain groups were concentrating on the peace process. Mm and other groups were concentrating on civic education, the elections, and so forth. There's almost a, 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 without wishing to label it too much, a, a Karen focus and a Myanmar focus. Yes. And, and civil society was very much sort of um, working along that axis. So while we do say that obviously things have changed and, and there is a more plural and diverse sense of engagement, nonetheless, you can see a, a, an axis of priority and preoccupation that would still work in that context. Yeah, so, so Ben and, the, and then we'll, we'll go back to Larry. Yeah, Great, D um, just very briefly, two, two quick points. Um, building on what uh, Martin said and, and also building on what um, I think David said uh, earlier in the day, I, I see quite a lot of parallels between uh, the KNU situation now and the KIO's situation when they had their ceasefire, obviously in, in, in reverse. Um, and I just raised the question of the implications of that for the Martin mentioned the KNU's alliance with the democratic forces. I would raise the question of um, the implications for uh, the ethnic al alliance, um, the divisions between now the, the ceasefire and non-ceasefire uh, groups, um, and what that means for trying to find um, a federal solution for uh, all the, the ethnic nationalities. And then the second quick point um, is um, I've noticed just in my own experience um, over the last five years as I mentioned earlier, um, I have been less focused on the Karen for, for in the last five years. That's partly because of the other issues in the country, but it's also because quite a lot of my Karen contacts uh, in Mesot and in the camps uh, are no longer there. Um, either they've been resettled as part of the resettlement pro uh, program um, uh, in, in previous years um, to the United States or, or elsewhere, or increasingly, quite a lot of them are spending. They may not actually be living in Burma, but they're but they're spending a lot of their time in in uh, Yangon or, or Pa'an, um, and uh, and so that just raises the question of what are the long term uh, issues around um, around resettlement, uh, around uh, the refugees, around the question of people um, in the wider diaspora um, uh, returning. Yeah, I don't can I, can yeah. I just clarify? Do, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. can I, I just clarify something? Um, I would perhaps badly expressed the word conflict actors. I, I specifically meant by that, those ones who are driving the conflict. That probably means holding guns. And, and to augment your point, uh, this is why there's so much deep frustration in the northeast of the country, because it was in the previous ceasefire round. This whole civil society thing took off because of the activism. It started with faith-based groups, and then it moved to the NGO thing, which has moved across the whole country. And so there, there, there are people who have moved to, from IDP villages. They got resettled, and their villages are being burnt down again. So this is why the community groups are desperate now to become part of the process. And I forgot to mention just one thing. If we're talking about conflict actors, 
China has come into this, and that is a very significant story because until now there's been very little sort of outside influence, but the, the Chinese, through quite rightly the way they've analysed the situation, conflicts along the border, uh, groups being excluded, you know, they want to be part of this, and this is a game changer, probably, but we'll have to wait and see. So I, I just want to clarify that.